0: But um, Anthony, Anthony...
1: he finally accepted the invite to like the page after he (laughs) appeared Um, on it.
0: Yeah, after he had his two cents, he said his part. But that's how some people work.
1: Yeah, that's Anthony for you. Well, yeah. I'm trying to
0: get a dig in cuz he
1: got a big dig in. he got a la- he landed a big body blow on me and a little brucey bonus and I'm trying to get a
0: No no it took you to task but you're a, you're a better man than that to let it get to you because it allowed you to open up your thoughts to well maybe hold it's on the fact they denied my center left credentials at the end as well
1: <laughs> you know if I take the liberty to continue defending myself whilst not in Anthony's presence
0: it's perfect I'll be the proxy on that <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, what can I say? Probably. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, it's a shame, though, that The Guardian dropped off quite as sharply and deeply as it did. I mean, five years ago, we were all singing its praises. The day I decided, oh, I, you know, I've kind of had enough of the Guardian, mm-hmm. they did a hit piece on Majid Nawaz. Yes. And then they did, um, I think the term is like, Hagraphy. Hagraphy. As in, when you're doing like a biography of someone, but it's really oh. appraising, you're fawningly, falling oh. over yourself, talking about how great they are. And they did that for a known Islamist. Like jihadist sympathizer. Okay. So on one page, you've got a hit piece on Majid Nawaz, who's actually trying to get—he's taking Islamic radical terrorists and de-radicalizing them. Yeah, he's doing something good.
0: He's trying to do something at least. Yeah.
1: And then on the very next page, you've got this article about a guy—I can't remember his name—but he's—he was a known Islamist, you know, jihadist sympathizer. Is
0: that really—is that the Guardian's position on this now? Then it's so—it's like a, a like a weather meter. You know, it just spins where the weather uh, where the wind is going.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is definitely something about to uh piss Anthony off basically. There is something about <laughs> the left getting into bed with Islam.
0: But that's the thing. I mean, like I mean, we we we're, we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about um Islamic Brussels. terrorism. All right, yeah. Uh, Which is going to get a little rough. It's going to get a little heavy. It's going to go against some things. I think it's going to go against some things. You think it's definitely going to go rub some people the wrong
1: way. Because mine, I want to. There's a lot of in terms of the discourse about Islamic terrorism. Mm -hmm. It's we're letting ourselves down quite heavily. And I want to. There are a lot of talking points, a lot of arguments that I think are kind of bogus and um, distractions from the real what we should really be talking about. Yeah,
0: like like offshoot that have been legitimised for some reason.
1: Yeah, but do you recall not the very first episode we did but the unreleased pilot that we did, the dry run. Yes. To kind of basically just like pretty much test that the equipment worked and all of that. Yeah. we That was the week of the Paris attacks. I mean, it was, wasn't it? Yeah. And here we are what, three and a half, four months later? Yeah. And we're here again Another Islamic terrorist incident in continental Europe. <laughs> it's brought us back again.
0: Well, you know, it's our, it's our policy keeping all those Islamists away from us, you know, over in Europe that's saving us. That's why I want to stay out of Europe, because that will mean they won't want to come here.
1: Oh, that is highly, highly inappropriate talk. No, you?
0: no, you don't understand. It's not redundant talk. But that it's is, up to date. Yeah,
1: but that, I mean, that's kind of the thing. I mean, I guess that might be... <laughs> The number one thing that bothers me the most in terms of the discourse in the media and on social media as Mm. well, in terms of talking about terrorist attacks, terrorist incidents, I think that is the number one thing that bothers me is, oh, now's not the time. We can't talk about this now. Mm. And Mm. the reason that bothers me is we live in a a very fast-paced, instant gratification-type culture.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And if we don't talk about it within, I would say, literally 48 hours...
0: It definitely after the incident.
1: Yeah, if, if we don't talk about it within forty-eight hours, we won't talk about it at all.
0: It's that forty-eight-hour news cycle. Yeah, it can be forgotten. It's, it's, it's not the flip even... side. people forget that when an event happens, if you don't catch it now, it will be forgotten. The other
1: thing that really bothers me is there does seem to be quite a Pavlovian response. The conversations that we have around Islamic terrorism, I think they're well, we're well trained now. Yeah, we're well trained in what it is we're supposed to say. The kind of uh, the way we restrict the conversation to certain things, to certain talking points, and then we don't go any further than that.
0: It's it's like um, that Adam Curtis series, The Power of Nightmares, where he talked about this great thing about oh dearism. Oh dearism. Oh dear. Oh dear. Oh dear. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. Where it's very much you feel so numb and out of control of the world that all you can do is go oh dear bit hollow though don't don't you think he does three documentaries about the concept
1: okay no but (laughs) but i mean that the
0: the phenomenon yeah
1: itself oh dear it's a little bit empty
0: no i mean it's a very very much a simplification of i mean you can you can almost understand like the other flip side of it is terrorism is i feel i've got to do something to make a stand there's no yeah
1: normally that takes the form of well, the Paris attacks that happened in France, so I changed my uh, Facebook profile picture yeah. to the French flag. It is 100% virtue signaling, really. Yeah. You're signaling to the world how virtuous you are, but it's such a tiny gesture that doesn't require any sacrifice. So where's the virtue in it, really? Yeah. That's the kind of standard response. It's something like that. Something small. A lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but there are some pundits, some commentators that are kind of decrying that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that really uh, show. It's a kind of, it's a small gesture, but it is a sign of solidarity, and I'm I'm totally okay with that.
0: It's a sign of solidarity, but then there's also like having your say in an argument that's got nothing to do with it. It's like going to a party and just joining a group of people and laughing when everyone else laughs to feel part of a group. You're just going with the crowd, is that yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, I can't stand that. Do you ever feel
1: a bit weird? Do you ever feel like someone's looking? They've noticed that you haven't changed your profile pic, and you're getting a bit worried. <laughs>
0: They might I, think I'm pro-ISIS or something. Funnily enough, I have a few gay friends, and when it mm. came out as a uh, gay marriage for everyone, everything like that, you know, I yeah. didn't change my profile. Okay. I mean, I didn't change my profile because I never change my profile. Yeah. I never do anything with it.
1: If you're not an everyday Facebooker,
0: yeah. you're probably not going to change your but i had comments no 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 not not comments on my page ah, okay, it was weirdness. more it yeah. was more messages to me kind like hey anthony did you notice you know through facebook they messaged yeah, you through think. facebook oh
1: there's yeah. something weird there's something like the kind of psychology of that is weird
0: don't you think but when i met them face to face they Ooh. wouldn't bring it up what was the thrust of their message what was it they were taking you to task for that I hadn't shown that I hadn't changed my profile. Did they
1: try and insist it showed something else? Like no,
0: they they didn't insist fought. on anything. They would say, "Hey, I've changed it. Yeah. Have you not noticed?" And I would go like, "Yeah, I did notice.
1: Hooray!" It's not a little bit invasion of the body snatchers where they noticed your face. Imagine imagine you walked around with your Facebook profile <laughs> on your face, and someone notices yeah. yours hasn't got the Belgian flag on it. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so you think something a little bit creepy. It is, it is very
1: creepy. Every time there's a terrorist attack. Yeah. I mean, it, someone listening to this and you you have no idea what we're talking about. We're talking about the Brussels terrorist attack. Surely, by now, you're aware of it. Um, we're not going to go into gory details or anything no. like that because you've, you've read about it. You've heard about it somewhere else, surely. But um, I want to talk more in a meta sense in terms of the conversations we have around Islamic terrorism and how I feel they're really not conducive to pretty much anything
0: to to moving
1: forward or yeah. or do you feel moving towards a solution we've got these pavlovian standard responses to these terrorist attacks now yeah and like we say, we spoke earlier about changing your Facebook profile pic. That's one standard response to this. Mm. There are standard responses in the media as well. Um, but I find in terms of actual worthwhile information and actually trying to educate the audience, mm. on what it is they're seeing, who these groups are, who these people are, the media are really, they're half assing it completely
0: has the media is that the point of the media nowadays
1: because i think this is a uh, i think we might have mentioned this on an earlier episode but we, we the we old do, school we do go into this a lot the old school news reels that you used to go into the cinema you know the uh, cine They were completely contextless. It was just, Mm. "Ah, today, this dam fell down, and yesterday, in this country, something happened here. And you don't get any context to it. Raw information. Yeah, news completely evolved from that. Mm. And I think maybe their job isn't necessarily to educate you on all the ins and outs, but they should be there to contextualise what is actually happening. And they're leaving... ...the public in the dark at the moment. It comes across almost as apathy, maybe like a lazy complacency that the media has about this now. The reason they aren't really being entirely forthcoming with all the in-depth details of what's going on... ...is because they've got this paranoid fear that the British public, first of all, we're too stupid to wrap our heads around it. I think that's kind of the first slap in the face from the media. Their other fear is that it might fuel white nationalism... In Britain, I don't know about Western Europe. I imagine it's probably the same in Western Europe. But in Britain, we are massively paranoid of white nationalism. But they're afraid. They're afraid that if we talk about it, it will fuel white nationalism. It will fuel the far right. I think that's a very paranoid fear. The far right barely exists they're completely fringed they're irrelevant and especially in britain mm. with the much decried first past the post electoral system mm. the one benefit of first past the post is that extremist parties the extreme left the extreme right they can't get a look in i mean this is really it's not something we really have to be afraid of but part of me kind of also thinks maybe that's just a convenient excuse maybe they can't be bothered themselves maybe they can't be bothered to uh, like learn arab pronunciations of names and things. And they just, so they're just like, oh, whatever, I can't be bothered. Our readership will do with what we supply them, which is the same. It's a recycling of the same conversations, the same talking points over and over again.
0: Of course it is. It's, it's a 24-hour news cycle. But I'm saying the media
1: are so afraid of the far right. They're so afraid of the far right getting in on the conversation of Islamic terrorism. Okay. To the extent where they're saying, do you know what? We can't have a real in-depth conversation on it because the far right will get involved, they'll start derailing it and they'll introduce like too much racism and things like that. All that does is it leaves it to the far right. The far right are going to talk about it whether you're going to talk about it or not. And then the narratives that are formed around it are right, far-right narratives. You've missed your opportunity to scupper the far-right, to yeah. get them out of the conversation To get ahead of the conversation. Yeah, and I think that it's backfired on the media now, especially in Western Europe, where we're seeing the rise of the far-right in France, the Front National, uh, there's groups in Germany that are challenging Merkel's, what, are they Christian Democrats? You're seeing the rise <laughs> of the far-right because centrists, uh, leftists, center-left, Center right, they don't want to talk about it, mm. and I think the conversation is artificially narrowed mm. in a sense. Um, like I say, there's there's Pavlovian and standard responses now that I think we are actually kind of trained into doing. And then the number one, the number one talking point, yeah, whenever whenever an Islamic terrorist incident happens. The number one talking point is, uh, the I call it the not all Muslims argument. It's the not all Muslims are terrorists argument, yeah, right?
0: It's succinct. It sums it up.
1: Yeah, yeah and um, the thing is, the argument itself, of course, is entirely valid, but it's kind of a given. I mean, anyone with half a brain knows that not all Muslims are terrorists. In fact, only a tiny percentage of Muslims <laughs> are terrorists. Everyone, we all, this is a given. It should be, and um, I think the reason people are so fond of this is because the media, they will find someone, whether it's a guy on Twitter, someone making a YouTube channel, they'll find some random nutcase who will say,
0: this is Islam, this is the true face of Islam, blah blah blah. blah." Yeah, if you, or or the other side of it, if you read this text, this holy text it talks about this thing, and we can't stop the inevitability of it. and it's
1: not, there obviously are pieces of shit out there who Mm. do believe all Muslims are terrorists, right? But what percentage of the population are they? They're about 10, maybe 15% right and by com- like for comparison's sake 10 to 15 percent of people think the earth is flat <laughs> 10 to 15 percent of people think the queen is an alien lizard do you know what I mean like there's always a tiny percentage of people sure. that will believe any crazy shit so that they're, they're always willed out by mm. the media well oh, yeah, look I mean, at this Islamophobe it's a distraction like I said the number of people that genuinely believe all Muslims are terrorists is a tiny tiny percentage they're irrelevant they, they're not worth even discussing because they're so I- insignificant Mm. but it's that that's the immediate go-to thing that we do is yeah. we try and insist but hey, we're not we're not islamophobes we're many- not this guy you know the guy on twitter who boasted he um, he harangued some muslim women in the street asking her about the brussels attack as though he was interrogating her as though she had something to do with it right and yeah he's a piece of shit that guy right but he's just one stupid asshole like why why when the real story the real story is homegrown terrorism that's mm-hmm. the real story And we're not talking about it. We're talking, we're choosing to favour these innocuous but kind of feel-good stories. Well, stories that make us feel good because we can point at the bad guy.
0: Well, they're they're a quick answer. They're a quick cutaway. How many people have you met who will almost shut up the argument by going like, it's not all Muslims. Yeah. And then walk away and demand the conversation yeah. be changed. With,
1: with a quiet complacency. Mm. They're kind of satisfied with themselves when they say things. And it's like you're just stating you're stating the fucking yeah. obvious. Yeah, it's see, just trivial. That's
0: not a conversation, that's a statement and walk away.
1: Yeah, like you say, it's a bit of it does serve as a bit of a conversation ender as well. Yeah. And like I said, this is what I mean when we were saying we're narrowing the confines of the conversation to these trivial statements. Yes, those trivial statements are true, but like I said, they're trivial, they're yeah. insignificant. The not all Muslims are terrorists argument. If you're not quite satisfied with that, the, it moves on to the uh, has nothing to do with Islam statement. Who are you hearing that a lot from? What the nothing, nothing to, to do, do with Islam. Islam? Almost every talking head in the media. But I'm that's saying that's their it, it, instant response is yeah. to point out, and they sound insanely stupid. Mm. They sound insanely stupid whenever they say this. They're basically saying Islamic terrorism has nothing to do with Islam. Mm. And just I mean any ordinary member of the public when they hear that it's like well of course like how how stupid can you be of course it must have something to do with mm. it you must be insane. The argument is yeah it's too broad a term right. Yeah. But the media can't have it both ways. It's the media who is trying to portray Islam as this monolithic block. And then when it goes wrong, Mm. when treating Islam as a monolithic block, when a terrorist incident happens, which is committed by Muslims, self-identifying Muslims, Mm. suddenly people start... because. They've been trained by the media to treat Islam as a monolithic blog. They start going, oh, well, then Islam must be about terrorism then. Like, to me, that is, in the long run, the media's fault. Their refusal to break Islam down into the different schools and things like that is working against them. Are we going to go into that a bit We will more. go into that later. But I just want to, for the time being, I just want to go through what I think are kind of bogus statements. Yeah, one thing about the nothing to do with Islam argument that I find kind of troublesome is that it actually it fuels the conspiracists. The conspiracy theorists. Uh, no smoke without fire type thing. Yeah, where they suddenly start wondering, well, look, this, it obviously has something, maybe not a head of a lot, but there's obviously something to do with Islam here. And when the media, when almost in unison, the entire mainstream media says, no, 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 no. It definitely has nothing to do with Islam. They start thinking... With their conspiratorial ideation, oh my God, there's definitely something going on here. Islam must be taking over Europe or some ridiculous notion like that. Yeah, Yeah, they instantly start questioning, what is the media not telling me about this? Why are they lying to me about this, essentially? And um, again, much like the not all Muslims are terrorists argument, it serves as a distraction from what you should really be talking about. You should really be talking about what ideology is this. What kind of Muslims are the terrorists? And uh, the next sort of standard response, once you've gone through the typical nine arguments of not all Muslims, nothing to do with Islam, someone somewhere in the room, the talking head on TV (laughs) will switch the conversation to Israel, Palestine. It always, it happens every single time. Mark my words, the next time you turn on your TV and you see the talking heads talking about Brussels attack, at some point the conversation will switch to Israel. There's almost a presumption here of, well, oh, that's, that's why they blew themselves up in Belgium. That's why they blew themselves up in Paris. Oh, because it's about Israel-Palestine. It's, well, no, it's, it has nothing. It has literally nothing to do with Israel-Palestine.
0: Not saying not saying that people who want to control the narrative won't bring that up when they comment on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, they'll, someone might say, well, the terrorists themselves referenced Israel-Palestine. Mm. And it's like, I've looked into the whole Israel-Palestinian conflict, right? Mm-hmm. The one thing you find very, very quickly is that actually there's only a handful of people in the world who really genuinely care about the plight of the Palestinians. Most people really don't give a shit. They're just using the plight of the Palestinians as leverage most, uh, say, like the Arab neighbours, they reference the Palestinian, the plight of the Palestinians when they want more financial aid out of America, when they want a seat at the table of the UN or whatever have you. They bring it up when it's advantageous to them, but they don't actually do anything to help the Palestinians. What, what has Israel got really... Think about it. What has it actually got to do with this? Why are they it's blowing got up to Brussels do with it? if it's about Israel? But there's always someone G- who will steer the conversation to Israel whenever the topic of
0: Islamic terrorism comes up. But that's the thing. That's bringing the religious element into it. It's muddying up an argument by having the the solid ground of a country mm. and adding this extra layer of religion to it because you say islam there are fuck loads of islam uh um of muslims around and you know what not all of them live in the middle east
1: but do you find the people that bring up israel whenever islamic terrorism comes up do you find that they're almost trying to legitimize the terrorists They're almost trying to find a point of sympathy. Well, yeah,
0: I mean, a lot of them are atheists turning around, kind of not getting that what you're making is a religious argument. Mm. Actually, what it is, it's a lot of uh, water, water rights. There isn't a lot there, and you can blame Egypt for that.
1: Yeah, and I think it, by trying to switch the focus... From what what is the ideology that fuels Islamic terrorism? That discussion by switching it to Israel, all you're really doing is you're helping the anti Semites of the world. Mm-hmm. You're helping the terrorists. You you know you're distracting from what they're doing, and you're kind of making it um, as if they have some sort of legitimate grievance because they mentioned Israel, but they blew up Belgium. It doesn't really make any sense, but I
0: oh, know you, you can they, legitimize they you, it a bit. You you you're making a simple. One off incident into an international incident mm. you're, you're you're making these links to it,
1: yeah, and
0: um I find it kind of odd sometimes
1: people will bring up israel the they 're the same sort of people that are very quick to mention that oh, you know the Muslim terrorists, they actually kill mostly Muslims, and it's like okay well I... then maybe it doesn't really have anything to do with Israel, does it if yeah. they kill mostly <laughs>
0: I haven't heard that argument, but I can understand it happening. It's almost like, um, let's whitewash over this quickly. Mm. So the next up... Socioeconomic.
1: Yeah, next up is the standard Pavlovian... Response to Islamic terrorism:
0: the standard talking point. See, funnily enough, you say Pavlovian, and I imagine the bell for Mecca ringing, and everyone, <laughs> <laughs> and everyone drools. Nothing,
1: nothing to do with Islam. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, it's the the socio-economic factors argument. Mm. This is the um, when the topic when someone dares to broach the topic of why why are these young men and increasingly young women, mm. why are they doing this? What makes them want to go and strap explosives to their chest? And the usual answer we come up with is it's because they're poor.
0: Mm. But when, when you say socioeconomic, are you talking, say... talking purely economic happenstance, like
1: whether they're working class, middle class, whether they went to higher education or not.
0: Yeah, but you, are, you, are you talking Westerners? Or are you talking, say... Um, homegrown. Grown, home, yeah, homegrown. Yeah, homegrown. Okay, yeah.
1: The homegrown terrorists.
0: The homegrown terrorists, that's the economic thought. Like, they're in Whitstable and they can't get out and they're trapped and they feel like this this is an answer, this is an escape. Okay, I get you.
1: Like I said, this argument is put forward as a potential explanation. It's meant to have some explanatory power. Try and explain why would... Because it's such an irrational thing to do, right? To to strap explosives to your chest to blow up some kids on the tube. It's really irrational, right? Mm. And this is the potential answer that we tend to come up with it's socioeconomic factors it's because they're poor they're destitute they don't own anything they don't have much uh, in the way of a future in terms of financial security and i genuinely i do genuinely think this argument is entirely bogus whereas compared to the other ones that there was some truth mm. to this one i don't think there's any truth to this at all
0: there i think there's a leap in logic, when it comes to this, because if you look at the reason people join gangs, group together in something like that, because say certain economic factors come into play, and it's a leap in logic, and going like, well, if they do that with this, if they will join a gang and beat up old people in the small village, or or go sell heroin for these small um, villages, you, you'll sound like that, that. it's the it, natural thing. Well, these are Muslim people, so this is their version of it. But the do you? Re- accept
1: that argument that the reason they joined a gang was because they were poor
0: no but they're
1: working class
0: no but i believe certain economies they the the only viable economy might have been crime
1: um yeah i think they it's possible growing up on an estate where the people who you see on the estate who have the most money are the drug dealers Mm. the people engaged in credit card fraud and things like that Mm. but where I think this argument falls down okay. is the vast majority of poor people of working classes are completely law-abiding. They don't engage in criminal activities. They don't try and take shortcuts through life.
0: Uh, no, that, that's and
1: true. That's true. What that means is like, when I think about it logically, that means well, there, there has to be something else at play here. It's not just the fact that they're poor. There's something else going on. I think it has less to do with economic happenstance and more to do with identity, what your values are
0: yeah like like you you you're living in a world which has no identity, and this is, comes along and gives you an identity yeah and i think the is
1: socio-economic factors i think this is something generally middle to upper middle class people hmm. come out with to kind of it's you know it's like that it's but, all, it's not really self-flagellating but it's a kind of a humble oh these poor people but, but if, oh if only they hadn't as much money as i did they wouldn't do this and it's like well, but if it really is true. a thing why are people not
0: if their answer to it is going to, like it's socioeconomic economic factors yeah why are they not trying to fix a socioeconomic factor? Why are they they creating batman when they've got a billionaire bruce wayne ah cuz i think it do you see what i'm saying i think it's intellectual laziness really okay
1: i think i think the people who propose this sort of explanation answer yeah yeah but that's what i mean it's, it's not really an answer it's hollow in that sense it's empty and it's not quite sufficient because like i say the vast majority of poor people are law abiding they don't go out committing crimes just because they're poor. Do you know what I mean? It's definitely something else at play here. W- but, um, would you say
0: it? Would would you deny it totally, or would you say it has something to play? Well, what do you think the difference is? Take take two
1: poor young male Muslims, a and B. right? Just take two young male Muslims. One, they're mm. both poor. They both have the same economic happenstance. One dies at age twenty-one, blowing themselves up as a suicide bomber. The other one lives to old age and dies of natural causes. What is the difference between the two of them? They're both poor. Mm-hmm. Why is it that one will choose martyrdom whereas the other one will not? They're both the same economic happenstance. So why does one choose it and the other one doesn't? But
0: poor doesn't answer anything. It's, it's identity. If you, if That's you what I mean. If you can comfortably identify yourself, if you, if you get in with a group of people who are poor like you, you'll li- you'll link in with it. Ooh, if, if you get a job, say, working on the buses... And you'll never hit a certain cap to get you middle class or something like that. You're still working poor. I mean, I think this argument is
1: proposed in that sense of, like I say, the lazy intellectualism. It's that complacency, again, of where it's kind of, do you know, compartmentalization. You compartmentalize things, right? You put it into a sort of abstract little box. It fits in neatly. You put that box up on the shelf. And then you never have to think about it again. You've Oh, yeah, I've done that, that's sorted, put that in its neat little box, never have to worry about it again. I think that's what people are doing with this argument. I think there is some credence to the idea that poor, destitute people are going to be more susceptible to extremist ideas. I mean, I agree with
0: that to a certain extent. What about um, maybe even looking at the concept of um, being the hero of their own narrative? Mm, yeah, that's. I think that's the allure. The, the, the allure, like, like I have no control of my life, but this offers me an answer mm. where I can be the hero of my narrative. But why is it, like I say, with
1: my example, the two young Muslim men who are both poor, one goes off for Islamic terrorism and the yep. other one doesn't. It's something else separate to their economic happenstance, surely. And I think it definitely has more to do with, like you say, what do they identify with? Whether they're the kind of person that needs a higher power, higher meaning, or mm. they're the kind of person's maybe a little bit more stoic and just kind of gets on with it, I think the I social
0: said, that nature nurture also yeah yeah. But okay. I think
1: the social socio economic factors argument is not quite sufficient for me. It doesn't
0: quite answer.
1: Yeah, get there. All right. Last but not least, on the standard response. Around Islamic terrorism conversation, the I th- I consider it to be masochistic. It's the let's blame ourselves for this argument.
0: That's what the the general public, or is it more political? We blame ourselves. It's a Western thing. Okay,
1: Where we say it's oh, it's our imperialist past that's caused this, it's our meddling in the Middle East that is called this, it's blowback for something that we did.
0: Like, like, like it's a it's it's, sin of the past that's come to bite us on the arse.
1: Yeah, no, but I think there is a masochism to this. I think there is a sense, people are kind of getting off on it. They kind of like that idea of we're being punished. Yeah, These terrorists, they're punishing <laughs> us for our crimes, our sins. And, it, well, it's not even really our crimes, our sins. It's like the sins of the father being punished for it. <laughs> oh,
0: that, that like, just... for
1: example, what, what, what the hell has Belgium ever done to the Middle East that would warrant Islamic terrorists blowing themselves up in Brussels? See, I was
0: going to say something stupid like the Dutch, and then go like, I oh, know, the Dutch aren't Belgium. Yeah. But, you know, well, Belgium's, <laughs> Sorry, never, Belgium's never
1: done anything, really, in the
0: Middle East. No, Belgium's a new country, Yeah, this comparatively. is. Um,
1: I think this plays into the hands of the Islamic terrorists our willingness to say, yes, it is our fault, we do deserve this. It lends, again, it legitimises them, it lends a sympathy to the terrorists that they just completely, they don't fucking deserve it. No, I... I get exactly what you're saying with that. It's um, but there's places in the world that have never done anything to the Islamic Middle East, the Islamic world, and yet there are Islamic terrorists there. It doesn't <laughs> quite. Again, just like the socio-economic argument, it's not entirely sufficient. It's not sufficient enough for me.
0: It's not. It's not an answer. It might be a, a partial factor. It's uh, but, but trivial but, but,
1: though to me. Near, well, almost trivial, I would say. But do do. You, but I'm, no. But I'm saying. Do you lend any credence to this? what i call the masochistic argument of it's our own fault what's happening islamic terrorism is our fault
0: no i find people whitewash over history to find the most negative points to say to 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 be martyrs to themselves kind of like and i think again when you um
1: people who are fond of this argument are also fond of pointing out that islamic terrorists tend to kill more muslims than anybody else
0: terrorism by de facto point is to create terror to create to to scatter the thoughts Mm. It is designed if you kill a Muslim, like 10 Muslims in a hundred people, all right? Some were Jewish, some were Muslim, some were like that. You know, like, you're fracturing an argument, uh, a normal narrative of going to like, they were there to kill this one person to this one thing. That's terror. Mm. Terrorism.
1: They're indiscriminately killing. Mm.
0: But if you take Islamic
1: terrorism as a broad term, broad concept, yes, they kill far more Muslim people than non Muslims. And to me, that kind of shows you that this, oh, it's, it's blowback for meddling in the Middle East. I don't think that's true. I think these people would be conducting themselves as terrorists regardless. They have a mission that is completely inconsequential. Of Western foreign policy, like there are things. Obviously, there are things that we've done that have ticked them off, but it's not the driving force behind what they want. It's they have their own desires separate to that.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's the literally terrorists want
1: a global caliphate, Islamic caliphate, regardless of British foreign policy, American foreign policy, Danish. Did they, they attack the Danes for God's sake? What have they ever done? <laughs> um, but I wonder sometimes these the people who put forward this. It's all our fault. The masochistic argument, as I call it. Mm. Are they? Are they seriously suggesting that anytime Britain wants to formulate a foreign policy, are, they, are we supposed to run it by ISIS first, make sure they're okay with it? Hey guys, you know, is this foreign policy idea of ours is that okay? Are you going to shoot someone over that? Should we run it by them first? But,
0: but in essence, I, I think a lot of people in in politics, when something like this happens, when you need in politics, you need not an iron grip but a stern rudder. Yeah. And in politics today because of something like this and also with public opinion and everything like that we're getting this kind of wet paper concept of a politician. But do you think that's what we should do? Anytime we're trying to formulate
1: foreign policy we should think are ISIS okay with this? Is Hezbollah okay with this? Is Hamas would they approve of our foreign policy? Should we be appeasing these groups?
0: No, I don't think it should even even come into play on the final decision. (laughs)
1: those of you who listened to the special episode 7 brucey bonus will be aware that i was taken to task on uh, not being fair and balanced enough and one thing anthony pointed out was i spit my venom at people but I don't really come up with any sort of worthwhile solution, any solutions at all, let alone worthwhile ones. Okay. And to that end, let's discuss... What is the remedy to the problem that we don't really talk intelligently or in any sense kind of in-depth about Islamic terrorism?
0: So we, you, you're saying, like, let's let's actually uh, shine a light on this and stop just yeah. jumping from shadow to shadow.
1: I mean, look, we're not going to come up
0: with the response to Islamic terrorism. But if we do, we want a cut of the money that <laughs> the different companies that go in and take these countries... Well, look, I'm instantly I'm selling my story
1: for 250k to every newspaper it's the, the news world. of the world I'm taking my 4 million advance writing the book on how I solved Islamic <laughs> terrorism what, kind of, oh, what face would I have on the cover
0: of- <laughs> it would be a self-righteous one but you would be holding a copy of the Quran you'd be you be holding it looking off into the distance I
1: be yeah as though I was the perfect Muslim
0: yeah
1: (laughs) we're not in a position to propose
0: solutions to Islamic terrorism
1: as a whole Mm. we're focusing here on the conversations the talking points around Islamic terrorism
0: my first two cents is to maybe understand that Islam is a religion
1: as opposed to
0: as as opposed to a
1: political force but that's kind of that's kind of the point I'm trying to get at is that no but I'm saying make that separation whereas in the Middle East they don't really they don't really have
0: the luxury no but I'm saying for the blowback in the Western countries people should understand that there isn't that person that's Muslim that say works in the bakery down the road mm. has such a little connection to something happening in the Middle East yeah yeah true so that should be the first step to we don't need to worry about that anymore
1: I mean we've drawn up a list under the heading of what is the remedy it's a 10 point list as is always the case on anything online it's always a list of 10 things uh number one speak openly about different schools of islam this is something that we don't really do the british press is not willing
0: to do it's all encompassed under one umbrella islam yeah
1: they treat islam as a monolithic block which is convenient up to a point but then the far right get involved xenophobes get involved and suddenly you realize treating islam as a monolithic block is not the right way forward In the same sense that we talk about different Christian sects, different branches, different groups. Branches,
0: branches, perfect word. Yeah,
1: like there are multiple schools of Islam. Mm. We're going to be talking about those in a little bit. We're not going to go in depth on it we're going to use broad umbrella terms but it, we're going to go more in depth than the British press normally goes
0: I'll tell you one thing I know you want to go into that later but I think that's a good segue into maybe listing what they are
1: well I mean well, let's let's do this let's go through the list quickly and then we'll go ah, okay. more in depth so I mean point one first point of order we need to get to a place where we're comfortable speaking openly and earnestly about Islam not treating it as a block one solid block understanding there's different schools and sects and we're going to break those down into orthodox traditionalist islam a modernizing islam and opposed to both of those things really a fundamentalist slash reactionary islam And i think that's i think reactionary is a better term than fundamentalist but we'll get on to that in a little bit third point is to start asking ourselves what is a Salafi Muslim? It's, instead of just asking what is Islam, uh, instead of just asking what is Islam, what is a Muslim? Start getting a little bit more specific about it, and then following on from what is a Salafi Muslim, what is Tikfirism? This is a phrase I want people to kind of add to their lexicon because it's quite important, especially when you're talking about Islamic Islamic terrorism. is very important.
0: fearism. Number
1: five. Ask: Is Salafi Islam a breeding ground for terrorists? Uh, Number six, ask who is backing this leafy movement? Who's helping it spread? Where's the money coming from? Questions like that. Number seven, in terms of possible solutions, like I say, we're just two people with a podcast, but I think people need to start putting pressure on our government to start putting pressure on other governments where the Salafi movement is grown as started taking influence in terms of schools, universities,
0: schools, things like that,
1: over somewhere else or in the West, everywhere, everywhere. It's spreading. Salafi Islam is spreading across various parts of the Middle East and various parts of Europe. So, like I say, put pressure. Pressure on our government to put pressure on uh, predominantly Saudi Arabia and also, to a certain extent, Egypt. Uh, Recognise... This, I think, is very important, this Mm -hmm. one. Recognise that political correctness and cultural relativism, they've hamstrung us to a certain extent in terms of our ability to talk about Islamic terrorism. Mm -hmm. By putting so much of our concern on things like... Putting so much concern on things like, are we upsetting anyone? Mm -hmm. Are we being offensive to anyone? Is someone out there upset that we're having this conversation? Yeah,
0: constructed frames that allow people to mill about in their world without actually being a part of it.
1: Yeah, and it's just happening in our efforts to speak about this in any sort of meaningful way. So that was number eight. Number nine, our fears of white nationalism and how they're mostly misplaced. It's a paranoid fear. We don't really have to be concerned about this. It's not as... Bigger deal as the media, talking heads, punditry tends to make out. And last but not least, uh, there is a fatal flaw in multiculturalism because that topic does come up. It's very, it's normally hand waved. The idea of these are young Muslim men, typically, though it does include women to a certain extent, who haven't integrated into their Western societies that they live in. Did you want to say something? No, no. Okay. Because I think those Just are to keep
0: the light out of my eyes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: I think those are ten poignant. Uh, <laughs> 10 poignant points yeah to kind of keep in your mind to start thinking about start questions that we should really be asking that we're not currently asking so to our first point the different schools of islam now granted this is quite a simplified overview we're not really going to get too in depth thank you wikipedia not really wikipedia the two main sources just to go on a little bit of an aside here a uh, point that we brought up earlier mm. is that the media's job to educate you and if, say, for example, let's say hypothetically it's not the media's job, well, then you're going to have to do it yourself. Mm. You're going to have to go read it up in books. There's two books that I've read. Uh, one is called Terror's Source. The other is called the uh, Wahhabi Mission in Saudi Arabia. And they break it down quite well. Terror's Source is... Uh, the good thing about Terror's Source is that it's actually quite a short read. It's, it gives you a quick overview. It was written in 2002. Mm. So the thing to remember with Terror's Source is it's gotten worse since that book was written. And the Wahhabi mission in Saudi Arabia goes in depth in terms of the history of the Salafi Wahhabist movement. But uh, we'll get on to what these words mean. If you're listening, hearing Wahhabism, Salafism, like what do these words mean? We're going to go into that a little bit. So the different schools of Islam, as I noted earlier, there's basically three branches. There's Orthodox, traditional Islam. There's a modernizing force that comes into effect around the early 20th century and then almost as a response to the modernizing force we have a reactionary fundamentalist islam and that reactionary fundamentalist back to basics yeah but kind of like back to 7th century basics,
0: <laughs> basics. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what i mean What do you mean? You call this a wheel?
1: Yeah, and for the most part we're going to be ignoring orthodox traditionalist Islam because that's not really the problem. We're going to be ignoring the modernising force in Islam because that's not really the problem either. It's really, it's the reactionary Islam that is the problem. We call it fundamentalist, it's a bit of a misnomer, but it's a term everyone kind of understands. When you say fundamentalist Muslim, everyone knows what you're talking about. You're talking about the terrorists. So, orthodox traditional Islam.
0: Quick question. When you say reactionary, what are they reacting to?
1: Reactionary in a sense... They want to go back. They have an idyllic vision, which is like 7th century culture, uh, Middle East culture. Okay. And that's what they want to go back to. And And that's why I call them reactionary. That reactionary Islam, that's not a phrase you're going to be hearing or seeing almost anywhere else. So um, for many, many centuries, there were two very large schools of Islam, generally known as Sunni and Shia. And uh, to a much smaller extent, there was a third one. I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, Kurds. the Ibidies. Ibidies. They were a very, very tiny sect. They're not... I don't want to dispel, like dismiss at them as nothing. But, yeah, I think so. But they tend to only really, I think the estimate is they're about 1% of Muslims. So they're kind of not really significant. So people tend to focus more on Sunni and Shia. And Sunni and Shia School of Islam, the separate schools of Islam that comprise Sunni and Shia, they make up what's called orthodox or traditionalist Islam. Uh, fairly conservative in their views, especially by Western liberal standards. They're very conservative in terms of not massively pro homosexuality, not massively in favour of equality. They, I mean, they do. Quick question: Allow women rights, but they're not massively
0: in favour of equality. Do they? Do they get along with each other? Not massively. No. Okay. But, but, they, but they've got a lot of the same thought processes. But we're yeah. kind of getting off.
1: But then an Orthodox Muslim, a traditional Muslim, will respect government organisations, the government, the establishment. Mm. They will respect that they have a sovereignty and an authority that they can't really impose themselves upon it. Yeah. So whether it's a monarch or an incumbent government, yeah. a traditional Orthodox Muslim will respect that is separate to Islam. For the most part. And then in the early early 20th century, along comes a modernizing force. And these are typically, they were young Muslim men who were educated abroad, educated in Western Europe, America. Sure. And they pick up upon uh, Western liberal enlightenment ideals. Ah. But this is when early 20, the 20th century was an amazing period of technological advancement. Sure. outside of the islamic world for the most part mm. mostly in the western world and there were a lot of young muslim men from saudi arabia who were being educated abroad and they were picking up on western liberal ideas they were seeing the benefits of western technology in that, terms of labor saving and yeah, things like people that people
0: can change
1: and they looked at the islamic middle east compared to the west and yeah. these this modernizers, they figured the Islamic world had fallen behind the Western world. It wasn't as advanced as it should have been. Mm. And they blamed that on traditional Orthodox Islam.
0: The, uh... So
1: you've got in the early 20th century, we see Muslims breaking away from what's generally called the House of Islam, which is like traditional Orthodox Islam. But we see this for the first time in the early 20th century, a modernizing force that wants to break away from mm. that.
0: I mean, it wants to it,
1: make it more liberal, more Western.
0: I mean, but that i mean—that sounds like the, the the tide of change that was happening across the board from China, Japan. Yeah. And in
1: response to this modernizing force,
0: we see the rise of a, what's called fundamentalist
1: Islam. Now, like I say, fundamentalist Islam is a bit of a misnomer in the is sense this? that fundamentalism generally means you take the scriptures to be unalterable, the incontrovertible word of God. It's infallible. That's what really fundamentalism means. You believe that it is definitely 100% objectively true, the scriptures. Now, all Muslims believe that. Mm. So it's kind of a bit of a misnomer to say, oh, these are fundamentalist Muslims, whereas this group aren't. It's a bit stupid to say well, that. I mean, but um, in response to the modernizing force of Islam, okay. we get what I call... You're not going to hear this phrase almost anywhere else. It's what I call reactionary because I think fundamentalist is a bit of a misnomer, and it's reactionary in a sense. This group, this Muslim school of thought, believes there is a idyllic form of society, and it's seventh century. It's going back this that far.
0: Agrarian. Yeah. So these, yeah, these reactionary Muslims. If think, only the world would just stand still, and it would yeah, be fine.
1: Exactly. The opposite to the modernising force. Yeah. They think technology, there's kind of evils involved with technology. So they almost, have no love or respect whatsoever for Western liberalism at all. Almost kind of a Luddite type idea. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. And uh, they're kind of they're Philistines as well in the sense mm. they don't have any time for philosophy, art, even theology, they have no time for whatsoever, which is very much opposed to orthodox traditional Islam. Yeah. So like I say yeah. you've got modernizing force of Islam that's opposed to the orthodox traditional Islam and then opposed to both of them mm. you've got the what we call fundamentalist, what I call reactionary Islam. Yeah. Now, your everyday Muslim the follower of the traditional orthodox style of Islam. They tend to not want to get involved in governmental actions. They tend to not want to get involved in things like challenging the establishment. They tend to want to stay out of that, right? Whereas the modernizing force on Islam, they want to get very much involved in government. Historically, over the last 40 years or so, the modernizers have a great success in terms of getting themselves into government and have it being like a, a political force in a sense. Sure. And again, opposed to that are the reactionary Muslims, the re- reactionary school of Islam, where they just want total control. They don't respect government. They don't respect the authority of a monarchy.
0: There's a higher authority, and that's always been.
1: Yeah, but the higher authority isn't necessarily Allah. Mm. It's them, it's It's themselves.
0: The lens they're they're reading Allah. Yeah,
1: they think they have the perfect doctrine. Mm. And therefore,
0: anything that deviates
1: from that is heretical. Yeah.
0: It seems very much. It it seems very much kind of true to say, like any caste system when it goes through change. You had like. Uh, A theocracy, and then you have the rise of the merchant class, and then after the rise of the merchant class comes the merchant actually having power over the king.
1: Yeah, this is kind of natural to any monotheistic religion. You have these Breakaways, these splinter factions mm. and things like that, and that's why I uh, I object to the rhetoric of the one true Islam, the one true doctrine. There is no one true Islam, one true doctrine. No,
0: there's only one true direction.
1: Yeah, and what we're seeing here is not out of the norm in any sense whatsoever, right? Yeah, the reactionary fundamentalist Islam is tends to be highly militant in the sense that it will be it will use violence at the drop of a hat, really. Yeah, I think they are. Essentialist in the sense that they think any by any means necessary, Mm. whereas a a more orthodox traditionalist Muslim would draw the line at violence, yeah, yeah. So it can't be overstated. The violent terrorist Muslims are, of course, a minority, and the school of Islam that they come from is Mm. a minority for the time being, though.
0: You feel it's growing,
1: yeah. Uh, so our third question our third preferred talking point in suggestion as uh, suggested S- as a remedy
0: leafy muslim
1: yeah what is a salafi muslim salafi uh, i think that's how it's correctly pronounced i used to say like, I, like up until a couple of days ago i used to say salafi which is obviously wrong clearly wrong <laughs> when you look at the spelling it's clearly wrong but um we one thing to point out you might hear not very often but you might hear someone say wahhabist Salafiist, right You might hear those two terms. Wahhabi... Linking them together as one thing, or...? Yeah, Wahhabi and Salafi, usually, like, with a slash in between Ah, the two. And the reason for that is they're actually the same thing, entirely the same thing. Uh, Wahhabi is more a term you would hear inside of Saudi Arabia.
0: Ah, it's a cultural thing.
1: Yeah, Salafi is a term non-Saudis typically use in referring to this school of Islam. Yeah. So... You'll hear those two terms used interchangeably. We might even use them interchangeably, but we'll try to stick, because since we're non-Saudi, yeah. we'll try to stick to Salafi Muslim, Salafi Islam. Uh, Salafi Islam is part of the aforementioned fundamentalist reactionary Islam. And its doctrine, its doctrine is largely based on an Islamic scholar who came from Saudi Arabia, who lived uh, He lived in the well, 1700s, so 18th century. Sure. Uh, in his day, he wasn't taken particularly serious. It's a guy I can't I can't pronounce his whole name. I can only pronounce the last bit of his name, Wahab. So Wahab—that's where the Wahhabi comes from. And um, he wasn't taken very seriously in his day. He was considered a bit of a uh, a loneliness. bit of a whack job, yeah, a okay. uh, loner, yeah. And it wouldn't be for another couple of centuries where his ideas, his doctrine, his was, teachings, yeah, was taken up seriously. It wasn't really until the twentieth century that his Wahhabist Salafi mission, his yeah. movement, would actually start to gather pace. As previously mentioned, uh, Salafi Muslims, they want they have an ideal in their minds of what society should be like, and it closely resembles what uh, the Middle East was like in the 7th century. To that end, they're opposed to things like, like I say, like modern technology, philosophy in general, particularly philosophy that came out of Europe, they're opposed to. The tenets of Salafi Islam generally does contradict the traditionalist Islam, the orthodox Islam, especially when it comes to things like what governs moral authority, Mm. uh, what are moral laws. They don't even accept the general theology of Islam. Okay. And that's why you tend to see... Uh, A lot of traditional orthodox imams, they'll write letters explaining how the Salafi movement doesn't adhere to the doctrine, what they consider to be the one true doctrine of Islam, of course. They also have their own unique view on marriage. So a Salafi Muslim will tend to be in favor of polygamy, whereas a traditionalist orthodox Muslim probably wouldn't. The polygamy in the sense of taking multiple wives. And a Salafi Muslim will insist on being able to issue their own fatwas. So you know what a fatwa is, right? Yes. Generally, in traditional Islam, there is a hierarchy and there is a process, a method for issuing a fatwa it where goes it's considered up
0: the chamber of commerce.
1: Yeah, well, where it's considered legitimate. Yeah. Where Salafi Islam says, no, 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 we insist on being able to issue our own fatwas <laughs> for any arbitrary reason that I'm we can beef, think of.
0: Let's officialate it.
1: There is no real official process which is like in contradiction to traditional Orthodox Islam, Mm. and kind of unique to Salafi Islam, a real strong desire to impose their branch of Islam on all Muslims. Mm -hmm. They consider anyone, any Muslim who doesn't adhere to their doctrine as a heretic, an infidel, no
0: wavering in any way. It's you either, either you're you with us or you're not
1: with us or against us, straight up. Now, that doesn't necessarily denote that they will kill you because you're not the right kind of Muslim,
0: but you certainly won't get into all the cool clubs. You have to be
1: a real hardcore Salafi Muslim yeah. to go to that extent where quote this passage or I cut your head off. Yeah. That's not generally Salafi Muslims. In general, that doesn't really apply. You have to go to Takfirism to find that ethos, um, okay. that mindset. That's
0: the next step up. Yeah,
1: Takfirism is roughly translated: it's excommunication, uh, deeming, oh, yeah. being the arbiter of who is a real Muslim, who isn't. But it's, you but know, without, that kind of mentality. <laughs> but without that, it's um, the finger-jabbing. Mentality, you're not quite right, you're not quite the right type of Muslim, you should yeah. be our kind of Muslim. Very harsh, very forthright, mm. and not really in line with traditional orthodox Islam. Now, tech theories, like I say, they're the hardcore, almost you can almost consider them radicals of Salafism, yeah, uh, highly militant, obsessed with pointing out. Like I say, the finger jabbing. Who are kafirs? So, heretic, infidel. Who are the real Muslims? Who are the fake Muslims? Who needs to be killed? Who gets to live? They want that power to decide that for themselves. So, Takfiris are highly prone to sectarian violence by virtue of the fact they're hardcore monotheists. A hardcore monotheist cannot stand the idea that there is anybody out there doesn't that does not adhere to their doctrine. A big part of why I'm anti-theist is monothea hardcore monotheists they just cannot leave you alone they can't leave you your family your kids they can't leave your school alone they can't leave your government officials alone. fingers trying. in every pie yeah it's totalitarian nature it has to get involved in everything it has to dominate everything Yep. and as stated earlier it's your tech theories who are the hardcore we are going to establish a caliphate by any means necessary whether that means bombing people Torturing people, throwing gays off of roofs, blah, blah, blah. You know, they'll do whatever it takes to establish their caliphate. They think that is the true purpose of Islam. It's less about spiritualism as an individual and trying to be holy as an individual. It's about forming a caliphate. Well, that leads us on to the next sort of topic of discussion. Is Salafism a breeding ground for terrorists? Uh, short answer, really, for me on this one pretty much, yeah. Kind of, uh, Any time you put that big a- emphasis on your monotheistic beliefs, it's going to get messy very quickly. You're, um,
0: whenever your world view... You put up blinkers to so the rest of the world, you'd lose concept of context. Yeah, and it's easy to be blinded by
1: ideology, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's really... That's kind of what you're talking about here. You're talking about a very powerful... Islam, a very powerful islamic ideology that gives a great purpose a more uh, it's, a rudder. it's a more yeah like a rudder it's more cemented it's less abstract yeah than traditional islam traditional islam very much about the spiritualism of the individual whereas this is i guess you could call it more political in that sense in the i in the sense that it's less about spiritualism but all to me like i said earlier all monotheistic Religions, they all dip their beak into politics. It's so because it's so in- fundamental to their worldview. I think Salafism does enable Takfirism, yep. which is where the hardcore terrorists that's their ethos, that's what they're coming out of. And like I say, I think Salafism is a breeding ground by extension of the fact that it enables Takfirism. Now, one concern with Salafi Islam is it is growing very, very rapidly. Over the last 10, 15 years or so, it's grown very, very rapidly. It's spread out into Western Europe. It's spread out from Saudi Arabia and Egypt into Western Europe, starting to cause all sorts of problems there and so to the question of who is backing Salafi Islam where is its support base where is the money coming from I think this is a very poignant question to be asking in regards to the conversation around Islamic terrorism I think we to my earlier point we should be putting pressure on the government to be asking these questions and I think we should be putting pressure on the government to follow the money which generally the money generally comes out of Saudi Arabia obviously Saudi Arabia a very very all rich country lots of money to burn on things like this and there's quite a lot of sympathy for jihadist movements even by muslims who are not jihadists in themselves and they don't really adhere to a doctrine that supports jihad outright they still have sympathies towards it and they're still willing to pay money to the salifi movement because they have that sympathy for jihad the holy war in order to establish a caliphate they might not necessarily be in favor of blowing this up or that up but they have sympathy with the cause and they will donate money to it the Salafis also have methods of raising their own money. So Raffles,
0: jam sales.
1: Kind of. I think it's called a zakat uh, where you take, uh, I guess in Christianity you would might call it a tithe where because you're, you pay a certain donation to a church, that kind of thing.
0: That's a tithe, I get you.
1: So a Salafi mosque and Salafi schools can raise their own money in that sense. But they're largely backed by very wealthy Saudis.
0: Benefactors.
1: So I think we need to put pressure on our governments. There's one thing that our government can do and Western European governments in regards to the Salafi movement in terms of quelling it is freezing the bank accounts. You can follow the money. You can find out who's paying for a Salafi school here or a Salafi university, a Salafi mosque. Mm. You can find out where that money's going, where it's coming from and you can freeze those accounts and that will help quell the growth of the Salafi movement. And I think we're kind of getting to the end here as Hyman's migraine kicks in hardcore. I'm sorry, man. In terms of... Of being able to free ourselves to speak openly, freely, and intelligently about Islamic terrorism, we have to come to an understanding that political correctness, things like political correctness and cultural relativism, they're not conducive to, being, to allowing us to speak freely on this topic. They're hampering, they get in the way. Do you know what I mean by that when I say political correctness and cultural relativism? Yes. And I think, I say political correctness in the sense of we have great fears... Oh, we don't want to be labelled as racist, as xenophobic, and so we decide to play it safe and stick to the constricted, narrow conversation of not all Muslims. Islam has n- Islamic terrorism has nothing to do with Islam. We fall. We rely on those topics of discussion as crutches so that we don't have to talk about the real issue. We don't have to get in-depth on it, and political correctness hampers us. hampers it hampers our ability to talk about this and uh cultural relativism comes into play for anyone that doesn't know cultural relativism the basic tenet is the idea you cannot use your cultural standards to judge another culture and you can't say one culture is superior to another culture and um somewhat agree with that but the drawback of cultural relativism is that people that really adhere to it tend to only ever talk badly about their own culture and when they when cultures clash they will only speak derogatorily. they will only speak poorly of their own culture whilst ignoring other cultures because they feel like they can't say anything about other cultures because i wasn't
0: raised this so i couldn't have a comment on it
1: yeah so cultural relativism again it narrows the confines of the discussion and i think that's why when we're talking about islamic terrorism i think we kind of have to leave political correctness and cultural relativism at the door
0: In just essence, to people enable... should grow up and not and not take everything so goddamn personally
1: yeah not get so easily offended mm. Uh, what nationalism we need to get over a paranoid fear of white nationalism of white supremacism these forces they really have been quelled they're on the fringes they're massively insignificant I mean the BNP is in such disarray Does anyone, are they still even a party at the moment I don't even know if they're even really a legit party at the moment anymore they're, they're nothing don't worry about them uh, the first past the post electoral system doesn't even allow far right far left parties to gain any sort of power anyway so you don't have to to be worried about these things
0: as well just because they bring up a subject doesn't mean it's taboo
1: yeah and just because uh like just because we're talking about islamic terrorism doesn't necessarily mean we're lending credence to far-right parties to far-right xenophobes it doesn't necessarily mean that we're just talking about it which i think is fine and as I say, there's um, the fear of white nationalism, the fear of the far right. It's, it leads to a self-fulfilling prophecy where we say we won't talk openly and earnestly about Islamic terrorism for fear of motivating, enabling the far right, letting them in on the conversation. But if you don't do that...
0: If you mention the Babadook, the Babadook will Babadook. come true.
1: Yeah. It's self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense of, well, if we don't talk about it in the non-far right, the only people who are left to talk about it are the far right and then the narratives around it will be far right narratives because we left that space there we someone had to fill that space it should have been us but we left it open to the far right and now last but not least by any means controversial point this one uh, i think we have to start recognizing in the context of homegrown terrorism that multiculturalism Despite our best intentions with it, it hasn't worked, it's failed. And I think there's an inherent fatal flaw in multiculturalism. And it's the fact that it doesn't give any impetus. It doesn't even really give a mechanism to encourage integration. It doesn't encourage first generation, second generation, third generation migrants. It doesn't encourage them to actually integrate with the, for lack of a better term, host culture. And I think, I think is the homegrown terrorism phenomenon has far less to do with socioeconomic factors and far a lot more to do with identity or lack thereof. Like, why does someone... Why does a young Muslim in Britain, in Paris, in Brussels, why do they identify with ISIS more than their home culture? I think that's a question we need to start asking ourselves and start taking seriously. Why when... I can't remember his name, but the guy linked to the Paris attack when he was arrested in uh, Molenbeek mm. in Belgium. Why were there protests at that? Why was there a near riot at that? Why did the Muslim community take such offence to that? Why do they identify, why do they have more solidarity with a radical Islamist terrorist than they do the establishment of the country that they're living in, the people of the country that they're living in? And why, again, that question is mm. very important. Why I'm not saying we should be more xenophobic, more far-right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we have to talk about these things openly, earnestly,
0: sincerely. your opinion is multiculturalism doesn't work. It doesn't work, and it's
1: failed in the sense... There are a lot of these Islamic terrorists are second, third generation migrants. The children of people that came to a foreign land and why they should have come over when
0: the French came over
1: but in previous decades when we were more multiracial your second and third generation would identify with the country they were living in they would respect the authorities the values the establishment whereas we've done away with that and I think multiculturalism has a fatal flaw in that it doesn't give any urgency or any impetus to this is why you should integrate it's just you can come to a foreign land foreign culture with your own culture and you never have to adapt, assimilate, integrate. You can say, if you're Bangladeshi, you can come to London and you can be part of a community where you will never meet or talk to anyone who isn't a Bangladeshi. There's no impetus on you to integrate because you don't need to. Multiracialism would encourage that, multiculturalism does not. And then, that again, that's a topic wider conversation we well, bring getting, it up another time it's one that we should talk about I'll oh, definitely multiculturalism success failure open to the page shortly but uh, hopefully in listening to us talk about these things hopefully you've learned a little bit more broadened
0: your mind a little bit yeah maybe maybe even hated us a little bit more or less
1: hopefully we, we like I said we took a broad simplified overview of this but hopefully it, we've introduced you to a couple of terms that maybe you didn't know about before and we've given you something that's you can look into yourselves but like I say this is a very important topic it's something we should be talking about we shouldn't be narrowing the confines of the discussion and uh hopefully you got something out of this apologies to Hyman for the migraine yeah if you're wondering why Hyman hasn't said much he's been suffering
0: migraine for about 20 minutes.
1: he's been suffering through my uh boring rhetoric on islamic terrorism but um like i said hopefully you got something out of this and uh thank you very much for listening until next time